Welcome to From Fear to Fire, Secrets to Overcome Fear, Embrace Your Gifts, and Achieve Success. This is the place where real people share real challenges, where you can find a common bond and uncommon wisdom through their journeys to help you move from fear to fire. I am your host, Heather Hansen O'Neill, and today's quote is by John F. Kennedy. Everywhere immigrants have enriched and strengthened the fabric of American life. We have an amazing guest for you today. John Edwards helps organizations and teams to get rapid results, especially during times of constant change, which we all know we're in. John is a prolific problem solver with expertise in talent development, behavioral intelligence, organizational development, and applied neuroscience. He is an award-winning professional speaker and author of several books that leverage neuroscience to drive behavior change and improve corporate culture. He currently serves as the CXO, which is the Chief Excitement Officer at the Edwards Group. His organizational psychology and leadership expertise have led him to roles of increasing responsibilities in Fortune 500 companies like Time Warner, Honeywell, and Lockheed Martin. Let's have a warm welcome for John Edwards. John, how are you? Woohoo! I am absolutely groovy, thank you. <laughs> I gotta love a groovy answer. <laughs> So I am very excited to speak with you here today. Our last conversation was amazing, and I wanted to make sure there was a record button going on this one. So let's go back a little bit for our first question. How has your childhood experience as an immigrant to the U.S. shaped you? Oh, well, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, you, you know, my mother had a vision that I would be able to get an education. She wanted me to be, I was her uh, youngest child, her only son, uh, and she wanted me to follow a different path that was then was traditional for uh, our lineage, our heritage, uh, which then meant I had to uh, go to high school and graduate. And so she came to the U.S. and uh, hopes, of course, pursuing the American dream like uh, so many immigrant families do. Uh, she worked hard until she could afford to bring my father and I uh, here and, uh, and then ultimately my sisters as well who are older and had their own families. Um, and so I think in that transition, as I reflect back, uh, my first trip here, um, I was young. I was only um, in second grade when I first came over, and I could not make the assimilation. I could not transfer from what I understood to be cultural competence and where I grew up in the Caribbean into the cultural competencies that were necessary here in the U.S., uh, and it was really actually quite dramatic. Um, if you rewind in time, this is the uh, late 60s, early 70s. And it's interesting that you started us off with a quote from John F. Kennedy. Uh, you know, while we were in the Caribbean, uh, we have always held uh, the United States in a very high esteem. And just to give you an idea of how much so, um, my name originally was going to be Frank. Uh, and my parents had decided that that was my name uh, prior to me being born. Uh, but then Kennedy was assassinated. And my mother was so impacted by that, that she changed my name. 
So the F in my name stands for Fitzgerald. I was actually oh, named wow. after Kennedy. I did not know <laughs> that when I chose that. Wow. Yeah, that's, so that's awesome. Um, so it, and it ties nicely into coming to, to you know to the United States. So we're, we're we're in the we're in the late '60s, early '70s. Racial strife is still a very fresh thing as it is to uh, still today, right? And um, but where we lived uh, in the, the lower uh, economical areas of uh, uh, just outside of New York City. And there was still a lot of, of strife, uh, some ethnocentric issues going on. And, and so I just wasn't able to make the assimilation. I didn't understand that. I hadn't grown up in it. Uh, I didn't know that we weren't supposed to uh, have Caucasian friends, for example, in school. And so I didn't know the rules to play by, nor did I know how to fix it. And so it, it created a situation where I was kind of a man without a home, if you will, a man without a country, because I wasn't fitting into any of the cultures. And so, mm -hmm. so my parents had to send me back um, and bring me back at a later date. I would come over every summer for summer camp, and then eventually I would come back uh, permanently. But by then, they had moved, and the country had progressed to um, a, a little bit of a um, of a softer, assimilated approach, and there were more interracial friendships that were happening. And uh, so it, things have changed over that particular time. But I think the big lesson for me was understanding and being forced to learn about the cultural diversity, not only between countries, but within countries as well. And it launched me on a on a, on a journey that I'm still on to this day. In fact, I'm, I'm currently taking neuroscience courses at Harvard. It's a, just a continuing learning, learning journey to understand the human mind, the human brain, how we think, how we function, uh, and why we make the decisions we make. You know, I love that. And that was one of the things that struck me in our, our first conversation together, that we have that in common. I'm I'm fascinated by it as well. And I also love that you know, not just the topic, but the underlying perpetual curiosity that you have, that you're, you're always looking to learn and grow and figure things out. And I think that's very powerful. So how have you leveraged some of these past experiences to, to motivate your success? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that kept happening is um, I, I kept getting, I kept literally kept getting beaten up. So think of a, you know, a second grader and a third grader who goes out to the bus stop in absolute trembling fear every morning. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, you're getting beaten up by the kids who live in your apartment complex and around your apartment complex. I mean, physically, you know, just, um, and I didn't understand why they disdained me, why they didn't like me. Um, uh, I just didn't understand that level of bullying at that time. And it was largely because, again, I didn't know how to fit in. I was an outsider, I had an accent, uh, I was making friends with the wrong people, and I didn't know how to fix it or correct it. Uh, and it actually got seriously enough that uh, even at that age, um, my parents started to notice some suicidal tendencies. And we lived on the seventh floor and uh, I, I won't go into all of the details, but, uh, you know, I started thinking through what does that look like if I, uh, if I leaped out that window. So th that helps you to understand why a, a mother would actually send her child away. Uh, yeah. It got to a level that was so bad that it was in my best interest uh, for her to, um, uh, to allow me to be someplace where I would be safer and more comfortable. Now, so, and then when I came back to the United States, um, I'm not entirely uh, clear of guilt here because uh, by then I had learned how to, to understand and analyze what was going on. Um, and, uh, and then I became the bully. 
Um, I turned, you know, it, the pendulum swung the other way. Uh, and I turned into the guy who um, was physical, who um, was easily agitated into a conflict, into a fight, who understood now what that level of authority and power can give you on the playground. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I turned into someone I didn't like. Um, and, and I would eventually get turned around in that regard. Uh, I would have some folks around me who would shape me and guide me and help me to understand uh, that that was not the right path. Those were not the right decisions. I also had a very, very strong you know, mother who um, was, was a disciplinarian, but also just a caring, loving, and remarkably, you know, she's basically my hero. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I had elements in place that would help to shape me back into what, uh, into a human being that I could be more comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that being said, in my continuous learning journey, right, of my pendulum swinging from being abused to now being part of the abusive team, uh, you know, I wanted to understand, uh, I I couldn't articulate it at the time, but I would eventually be able to articulate this principle, which has been my guiding principle, which is whatever I'm going through, I want to learn from it so that I don't have to go through it again. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So whatever I'm going through, I want to learn from it so that I don't have to go through it again. Uh, I'm a cyclical theorist. I believe that things happen in cycles. We tend to repeat a lot of things. And when I think about why that happens, it's because we're not getting maximum learning out of it. So I've got a book coming up that I've been working on now for years. It's called, Did Anybody See the Bus That Hit Me? And uh, Oh, wow. It's basically That's predicated crazy. on the fact that if you, know, if you and I saw a bus coming, what would we do? We'd get out of the way. So when people fall from grace and have major failures in life that are avoidable, it's largely because uh, they uh, refused sometimes to see the bus that hit them. And that was because learning stopped and pride began. Mm. And I never wanted that to be uh, my curse. So I came up with with what I call the L2 plan, the letter L and the number two. And the L2 plan is really recognizing that life is a sport and uh, we're going to win a few games, lose a few games. And some of those games are going to be really, really tough games. And having coached professional athletes and soccer players for years, one of the mantras I always shared with them is it's okay to make a mistake on the field. Just don't make the same one twice. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and so the premise here is how are you learning from all of these experiences? So the L2 plan is two L's, all right? The first is longevity and the second is learning. And longevity is your defensive reframing strategy and learning is your offensive reframing strategy. And so through longevity, um, this sprung out of, you know, the, um, the early years when I was thinking about jumping out of a seven-story window. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, uh, you stay in the game, and as long as you stay in the game, you're actually winning at the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, uh, and I really drew on my years when my parents sent me back to Jamaica and, and why it was uh, so comfortable for me there. And, and so many people have been to the island, so you, you know, they'll know what I'm talking about. But you know, we're a free, fun-loving, love-everybody kind of people. Yeah. And we have a few uh, uh, sayings on the island that are, are really powerful for mental health. Right. You know, one of which is no problem on. Uh, yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I brought that back with me and I thought, how does that apply to this fast paced, stressful, uh, uh, you know, United States world that we live in? And, and how can I use that for my own mental energy and refocusing? You know, um, 
And there are a few other sayings, mi aire, uh, you know, yaman, which is kind of like no problem on, you know, it means okay, no problem. Uh, it's about putting things in perspective, you know, uh, and that's what the defensive restraining strategy is about. Uh, whatever I'm going through, I'm actually going through it. And the human brain has a tendency to think that this is what is going to be for quite some time. And we actually have to remind ourselves that that's not actually the case. We're going through something. And as a result, the objective is to emerge on the other side better than when we started, even though this thing is uncomfortable, uh, maybe painful, maybe extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's about the, the word through. We're going through it. I don't want to stay in it. I don't want to live in it. And I don't want to dwell in it. I want to go through it. And that's the longevity piece. I love that. The other piece is the learning piece, which I talked about already, right? Uh, I want to make sure I learn so that I, if I ever have to go through this again, it's going to be shorter because I'm smarter about it, or I may be even possibly not going to go through it again. Uh, you know, and, and so that's the offensive framing strategy, you know, and Medea, um, <laughs> uh, um, you know, is a, a Jamaican terminology that just basically says, yeah, I'm well, but it has this sense of I will be well. And, and so it's also a strategy of hope, recognizing that uh, life again is a sport, hills, valleys. Uh, I've gone through some stuff in the past. And so I've got to remember that I can go through some stuff now and come through having learned something. Mm. You know, this is great because it's so clear, uh, of, you, and especially if you're an athlete at all, but anyone can wrap their head around the longevity and the learning being the, the offense and the defense. And I, you know, I, the phrase, when you said that's when learning stopped and pride began, when we're going through these challenges, I, I was like, wow, yeah. I, you know, when you think back to your own stuff, it's like, okay, mm-hmm. That's exactly when it happened. That's when that's when you ran into all those problems because learning stopped and pride began. This is great. Now, tell us a little bit more about your athletic background because you did reference your coaching. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so you know, I've, I've um, always been naturally attracted to athletic competition, um, and uh, you know, growing up. You know, we we literally, um, you know, would go outside on our dirt fields and 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 play soccer. We call it football in Jamaica, but you know, play soccer or cricket or anything really, just all day long. And so, it, it was a very active lifestyle uh, as a child. And when I came to the United States uh, for the second time, which was the per which was you know, I call it my permanent trip when I've you know moved here permanently. Um, uh, I discovered that I could apply some of that energy here on in organized sports, and I just loved those physical types of activities. I also had a few coaches and mentors who were just remarkably good to me. Um, so I played soccer. I was a, a standout for a little while, largely because my style was different, and um, and so. Um, I would later discover the names for for all of this, but I, you know, it was basically uh, heavy on foot skill capabilities, and so individual one on one capabilities, and uh, and so that um, uh, became attractive to some of the teams and coaches, et cetera. But it really wasn't until my latter year um, that I got into a more significant, serious level of of competition, and that was actually in racquetball. 
And mm -hmm. so for a period of time, um, I played for the Jamaican national racquetball team. I was a captain. Uh, we played in four world championships. Uh, we, of course, started out on the bottom of the rung, pretty much like the Jamaican bobsled team. Right. <laughs> we came after them and um, into a sport where, you know, not quite known for its minority representation, mm -hmm. uh, even though it had a terrific South American contingency um, in it as well. And, um, and in the course of those four world championships, which occurred over eight years, um, we met our objective. And our objective was we wanted to be a top 15 team in the world. And at our fourth world championship, um, we earned enough points to place exactly at 15th in the world. And, uh, and that was just an exciting time for us. Oh, that's incredible. That must have felt amazing. Now, is there, is there anything that you learned from that, that you still either use yourself or you share with others in a coaching capacity or in the business world? Yeah. You know, I think, um, uh, well, there's a couple of things, yeah, that 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 emerged out of that particular experience. Um, it, it helped me to further understand that I seem to enjoy what I call minority expectation dissonance. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a lot of words, but all it really means is uh, I, I enjoy being the underdog. Yeah. Um, I enjoy coming in. Oftentimes, folks... Um, uh, you know, have an expectation uh, based on how you look um, mm -hmm. around what you're capable of doing and what you're not capable of doing. And so entering into arenas, in fact, the, the reason why this, this team even started was because um, uh, I became a professional ski instructor, uh, another unheard of thing at that time for minorities. There were literally very few of us, no matter where you went in the United States, um, who were certified at that level. And uh, and I was, I was training. I wanted to do a little racing as a skier and, and uh, the coaching team said, well, you, you need to do some off season training. So you've got to do mountain bike, uh, do some mountain bike riding. And we want you to learn how to play racquetball, neither of which I'd ever done before. Uh, and I fell in love with racquetball and uh, within a few years <laughs> sold my racing skis at a garage sale. Um, so so that's actually how I got into racquetball. It was supposed to be training for another professional event that I thought I was going to pursue. And, and the tide went the other way. I found a passion. I had a greater passion for that sport, which uh, I've retired and since then come out of retirement. And uh, I'm now playing with my youngest son. Uh, so that has created some remarkable uh, family moments and memories uh, for me. But I think the thing that I've learned is that... Um, you know, focused effort is, of course, significant, um, but we don't want to lose sight of the fact that there are people who will come alongside you to help you. Mm. And, um, and so who we are choosing to hang out with, who we're choosing to surround ourselves with matters a lot. Um, there are those who are going to say, you know, that, you know, the Jamaicans barely pulled it off in bobsled. I don't think the racquetball thing's a good idea. So you'll inevitably get your naysayers, you know, yeah. Yeah, you guys don't have the money for this. You don't have the budget. You don't have the coaching. You don't have the, and of course there's a long list of things we did not have. Uh, and so there are a lot of reasons why, you know, this, uh, and you get a lot of no's when you're knocking on doors, asking for sponsors and you get very weird responses like, wait, the Jamaican what? <laughs> racquetball is that handball is that the same thing is that the same as squash yeah um so you get a lot of uh jamaica do they have a court in jamaica do, 
Jamaican, do Jamaicans play racquetball? You know, almost as if there's something genetically in us that would prevent us from oh, being able to actually play the sport. Yeah, you, so you get you get a lot of that going on. But the bottom line is, um, uh, start as early as possible to be deliberate about who you have around you. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, uh, and just be super careful around who that is. You know, relational psychologists tell us we're simply the culmination of the five people we spend the most amount of time with. So if we're choosing to spend a lot of time with people who support even our wildest, I'm really fortunate. I've had a, uh, a you know, my lovely bride um, it has been remarkably supportive. Um, and uh, it, that has made it the world's biggest difference because I'll come up with a crazy idea mm-hmm. and instead of spending, you know, three months telling me why it's crazy. Um, <laughs> I think she knows by now he's got a crazy idea. Uh, he's gone after this thing. And, and she's just been remarkably supportive. So, it, it, you know, um, whether it's friendships, uh, closer, more intimate relationships, professional coaching relationships, whatever it happens to be, uh, a lot is going to ride on who we surround ourselves with. Oh, I, you're, you're definitely speaking my language. I completely agree with that. And I like the way that you framed it is that we get to choose, right? So start early and be conscious of it, you know, Mm -hmm. because we're going to be surrounded by people, but we don't necessarily have to be, you know, using them as our our guides and our mentors. We -hmm. get to choose who that's going to be. That's fantastic. So outside of family and education, and when you think about some of the obstacles that you've had to overcome, what are some of your biggest accomplishments in life? Yeah, um, that's actually hard to answer because um, it, it, you know, my family is my biggest uh, accomplishment mm-hmm. in life. Um, you know, I think we should all sometimes remember that we live to leave a legacy, meaning that uh, you know, when Heather's time is done, when John's time is done, whether we, it deliberate or accidental, we're leaving something behind. We're leaving an imprint on this world, um, and then we're leaving an impact on the world. Um, and the best way that um, uh, for me to do that is, is you know, through through my family. I'm fortunate to have that. Um, but outside of that, I, you know, I think we uh, we we talked about it a little bit. Is this sense of um, minority expectation dissonance? Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, living a life that reframes people's brains. Mm. Uh, and it, it, now that might sound a little arrogant. But please allow me a moment just to explain. Every time we interact with someone, we leave an imprint on them. We, it, it's a literal physiological imprint is, is left uh, on folks. Um, and I usually explain it this way. You know, Heather, um, you and I have gotten to know each other here and um, if, um, uh, if we'd only met, you know, once for lunch and then didn't see each other again for another year or two and ran into each other at, uh, you know, a speaker's conference or somewhere, you know, everyone has had this experience where you see someone, you know, you don't remember their name, right? You can't remember necessarily a context. Where did I meet them? Where do I know them from? But I just know I know them. So you and I would see each other from a, across the room at a conference and wave and go, oh, yeah. And we may not even remember each other's name if we've only met once, for example. Mm-hmm. But isn't it amazing that we'll always remember how we feel about each other? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you would lean over to your significant other and go, hey, there's that guy. I don't remember. Oh, I can't remember his name, but he's a really nice guy. 
Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, you know yeah. we remember the impression we leave on each other, even when we can't remember that we had lunch or that we're part of the same association or whatever. We don't remember that because it's years later, but we remember how we imprint on each other. Mm-hmm. And, and so for all of us in every interaction we have with every human being, we're leaving an imprint. And then, of course, that accumulates over time. Um, and that's what I mean by, uh, you know, we're leaving a legacy one way or the other. And so for me, um, I've enjoyed um, changing, uh, being part of the process that changes people's perspectives. Sometimes it's about how they view, uh, you know, a six foot two uh, man of color. Um, Sometimes it's about how they view someone from the Caribbean. And the most popular comment of which is, wait, you don't have an accent. Um, you know, which is the first thing people often say, yeah, yeah, as if because I don't have an accent, I must be lying that I'm from the group. <laughs> um, yeah, and 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 for some folks, I, I don't even explain it anymore. But uh, at one point in my career, I had hoped to be a Broadway performer. So, you know, think about years of theatrical lessons and mm-hmm. acting and dancing. And, uh, you know, there's a that's just one of the reasons why the accent only comes back when you make me angry. Uh, <laughs> oh, so I'm going to make sure that I don't <laughs> hear the accent. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, my, my wife always teases me that whenever I'm around family, she can hear it come back as well. Not because I'm angry, but just because it, it I, you know, uh, my, my non-filter, my non-accent filter gets turned off, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's so, it's still there, you know, um, uh, so, yeah, I think that, you, you know, um, the the things that I've been able to go after, and it's not because, wow, I was a professional athlete and, and I have a medal from the world championships or it, it's it's really that uh, I had an opportunity to change some things um, that that excites me, you know, um, it, it, to, to have been able to put together, uh, you know, um, uh, an underdog team that was able to do something. Uh, to have trained, um, uh, you know, young uh, athletes who had opportunities for college scholarships as a, you know, as, as a result to, I mean, all of those kinds of things that have been really highlights for me, if I were to think about things, you know, beyond my family and, uh, and that, yeah. You know, John, one of the things that is striking me right now as well Um you just drop some bombs, right? You, you, you know, I, these things listeners are, are not in his bio, but, oh, you know, I just, all of a sudden during conversation, you, you, you drop the little nugget that you were, you know, professional ski instructor. And then you drop another little nugget about, you know, being tr- classically trained and wanting to be a performer on Broadway or whatever it might be. Like just things like that other people would lead with. So I, I it's, stri- it's striking me that there is a, there's a humbleness in you that I can really appreciate. I, I love that because there's always, every time I talk to you, there's something new that I learn that you could have led with, but you didn't. Right. So I, I just think that's, that's very cool. 
So let's let's go back and talk about some of these companies. The, let's let's talk about the leadership and the the Fortune five hundred companies that you've worked with and and what you what you learned there in climbing that corporate ladder. Yeah, um, you know there was so much learning uh, that was going on. I've always had my my, my own companies as well that I've, I've run in the past, but uh, I was super fortunate as a very, very young leader to have a fantastic boss who didn't let me get away with anything, but it was always clear to me that she was on my side. Mm. Um, and man, I needed that. I look back now and you know you get to the fork in the road where you got to make a moral ethical decision you can go left or right and uh, you know you're young and you're you're at a very young age i was wholly and fully participative in the rat race i mean just i was all in on the climbing the corporate ladder thing you know now keep in mind again my pendulum swings sometimes way too far from one side to the other so mm -hmm. we're going from you know, kid running barefoot uh, and playing, you know, uh, uh, soccer barefoot in the dirt fields um, in, in, you know, in a third world country to uh, climbing the corporate ladder in the United States of America, pursuing the American dream. Um, and, uh, and, and quite honestly, it, it, it had swung too far. Um, mm -hmm. I was at that place where I had goals and objectives um, that were not the healthiest for my family, mm -hmm. that were not the healthiest for who I wanted to be as a human being. And for a period of time, I didn't quite figure that out. But I was fortunate that I had people in my life who held me accountable and would say things to me as they're noticing me going down some of these paths. And probably one of the most powerful things that someone ever said to me is, John, you know, the only person that wins the rat race is a rat. <laughs> That's good. That, that changed my life. Mm -hmm. That changed my life. That made me sit back and determine, okay, um, is that who you want? Is that the price you want to pay for however much money you want to make and however much you want your value to be worth? Mm -hmm. um, and it was at that point that I determined that um, I was no longer going to be solely salary focused. Uh, and it's funny, I had a conversation just the other day um, with, with my wife. Uh, I don't remember what I was filling out. I think I was filling out, oh, I was filling out a form for a, a financial advisor who's just doing some analysis of our portfolio. And uh, I literally could not remember how much I make. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I really couldn't. And, and I don't mean like the difference was, you know, a range of, I'm, I'm, you know, uh, making a uh, hundred or is it 120? It was a big range. I mean, you know, I mean I'm, like, I'm like, wait a minute, you know, I could not remember. And the range between the bottom of where I thought it was and the top of where it possibly could was probably like sixty, eighty thousand dollars $80,000. I mean, you know, it was a, it was a wide range uh, that, that, you know, and so I'm like, wow, I really, I, I really don't know. Uh, and that's really been the culmination of the work I've done to, to be able to provide for the family. But beyond that, I am not going to become a super stressor um, uh, around this. This is not the definition of my life. Mm -hmm. um, and having seen folks uh, in major corporations who have um, not only fallen from grace, 
but have lived a life of sadness. And I mean, these are folks who have been remarkably professionally successful, but aren't really happy. Yeah. Um, I'm grateful for the exposure um, to, to see what's possible and to know that that's not what I wanted. Um, and so, you know, the biggest lesson for me is that um, you only, you know, you're supposed to enjoy life. Yeah. Right. Um, and uh, the uh, having been on a path that was taking me down a place I didn't want to go and making me look in the mirror and not like who I saw. Uh, and then having some folks call me on that um, was just, they saved my professional life. Mm. You know, that's really powerful because I do see that over and over again, that the people don't even realize the path they're on until someone uh, with great intentions awakens them to that, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think that's very cool. Now, Now, I always like to leave our listeners with something that they might be able to go away and do or think differently. So if someone wanted to move their life from fear to fire, what tips do you have a, a suggestion or a tip that you could share about how to help them maybe program their brains for success since you have th that focus? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, especially given my, you know, my time in, in leveraging neuroscience to help folks uh, solve some of their most difficult problems, I would say this, the, the single thing I would share with you here is you need to regain your brain. Mm -hmm. um, you, know, you need to regain your brain. We are not aware of the magnitude of how many things are out there trying to program our minds. Oh. Um, I mean, it, it, you know, some of the more obvious ones, uh, you know, social media, the news, the internet. Uh, are deliberately designed to influence your thinking. We'd like to think they're sources of information, but no, they're actually deliberately designed to influence your thinking. So much so that it changes your worldview, it changes the way you see the world. And then here's what's worse, it changes the way you see yourself. Mm -hmm. And so um, no matter what you and I have been through in our past, and no matter what we're going to go through in the future, I think the pandemic season has taught us that uh, there's a whole lot more crazy to be had here in the world that we live in. And, and so tomorrow is highly unpredictable. Um, and, um, and so what we need to do is we really need to, you know, uh, be regenerative in our brains on a regular reoccurring basis. So what are you doing every week, maybe every day to regenerate your brain? It's getting drained by everything else that's happening in the world. So what are we doing on a regular basis to regain our brain? And the best time to do that is first thing in the morning, according to the research. You know, how do you start your day? Um, you know, in the United States, many people start their day by turning on that smart device, which, by the way, actually makes you more stupid, not smarter. Right. So, so many people are starting their day by turning that on and accessing that. And that's immediately, I don't have the time to go into it, but if we measure brainwave cycles, you are most influenced uh, during that particular time of the day, which is why it's so important. You pay attention to what you're letting into your mind at the start of your day. And I get it. There are folks listening who don't have any control over the start of their day. You know, they're, they're, uh, by the time their feet hit the floor, you know, they've got a two-year-old on one leg and a dog that needs to be walked pulling on the other leg. I get that. Uh, but to the extent that you can control 
the very beginning of your day, what is it that you're doing? So the news is not a good resource, right? Are you reading something that's uplifting, that's positive, that's you know allowing you to be focused? Uh, you know, how are you doing your devotional time at the beginning of your day? How are you dedicating that to reprogramming your brain for success in a positive way? That's super, super important. Uh, and then how are you being deliberate about restricting access to those, what I'll call negative influencers, right? We don't want you to bury your head in the sand, but accessing the news three, four times a day, every single day is not good for the human brain. Accessing social media on that kind of a schedule, not good for the human brain. And there's so much research out there that you folks can find very easily. I think I'm telling them things they already know. So being deliberate about how we're leveraging and using these things uh, is super, super important to help us to rejuvenate our brain and keep a positive mindset. Mm, that's fantastic, John. And it's so important, even though we know it, we're all at least to some degree guilty of, of what you're talking about, that that reaching mm -hmm. over for the phone first thing. I, I have to say in the last year since I moved down um, from Connecticut to South Carolina, the the new habit and pattern of walking on the beach at sunrise has completely shifted things for me because it puts me in a place where I can feel completely connected. And uh, it's very positive as opposed to being at the whim of someone else's priorities and agenda, right? By, by following in, in some of the things that you were talking about. So I think that's a fantastic uh, suggestion for people. Now, the time has flown by. We actually exceeded it, but, so, but I could spend all day talking to you. So let's give the people who are listening here and chomping at the bit to learn more about how to find out about you, your, your new book and all of that. Let's give them some information on what's the best way for them to reach you. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with them? Oh, thanks. Well, just very quickly, if uh, they're interested in any of the resources we've put together, some of which are free, uh, you can go to Eddie Speaks, E-D-D-Y-S-P-E-A-K-S.com. Hopefully you got that with my Jamaican accent. Uh, <laughs> EddieSpeaks.com is where our resources are. And then uh, my professional speaking business, uh, that information is on edwardsgroup.org, uh, edwardsgroupsingulargroup.org. Okay, and we'll put both of those links into the show notes for all of you folks out there listening. John, this is a pleasure as always. Do you have any burning final words of wisdom for everyone today? Uh, I, you know, I so appreciate this, this particular opportunity and, and thank you for creating a resource where uh, folks can uh, find uh, some positive, uplifting uh, and, uh, and, and healing information. So I just uh, appreciate you for your focus on doing it. Thank you. Thank you so much. And everyone out there, if you love this show, share it with a friend, leave us a review. We always love those as well. And until next time, have a beautiful day.